0: Uh, the philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre summed up the importance of beginnings by stating that there is one problem that every faith, every belief system, every worldview has to deal with. It must answer. And that must answer, why is there something instead of nothing? Why is there all of this stuff uh, that we interact with day to day? Why is there existence at all? And how you answer that question will largely determine just about everything else uh, that follows. Sartre himself, he was, a, he was a Marxist, he was a naturalist, and he was an existentialist. And if you're like, I don't know what, what that last one means, don't worry, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to begin with. <laughs> Basically, existentialist uh, comes from the idea of existence, and it means that your existence comes before your essence. That is, you exist before you have any meaning. So if you want to find meaning in life, you have to determine that for yourself. You exist, therefore you should make some meaning out of why you exist. And that is just the natural fruit of a naturalistic worldview. That is, if everything just came about by random chance. There is no meaning to any of this. So if you want to have meaning in your life, figure it out yourself. And getting creation right is a matter of utmost importance for us Christians because it literally does set the stage for everything else that follows in Scripture. I mean, we live and breathe and have our being in the created universe. It is, at least in my opinion, maybe you can do this, I can't, but I think it's literally impossible to think outside of creation. Right? It, it is what you know. It's hard to think past being in creation as creatures because we are not God. Now, God has spoken to us, told us something so that we might figure some of this stuff out, but even that is as creatures, not as the Creator. And the book of Genesis in particular has such great importance because it builds the foundation of our faith. Andrew Sandlin, who spoke here in the spring in his book on having a creational worldview, he says this He says, You can't get creation wrong and get the rest of the Bible right. You can't get creation wrong and get the rest of the Bible right. If you get creation wrong, you will eventually get the core of this message, the core of Christianity wrong. If you pervert the story of creation, you will end up perverting the story of the gospel. All that to say is this is kind of important. And that is why there's been so much energy spent for generations, trying to attack these first chapters of Genesis. Over and over and over again, outside of the church, inside of the church, these chapters are under attack, and Christians, we have a tendency to be embarrassed because of that. Like, if the world looks down on something in the church, the church has this really bad tendency to not want to touch it because we're embarrassed that people might think we're simple or uneducated or whatever. And the problem is, is if we... Ignore Genesis for those reasons. And we start in the middle. We miss so much of what, what's going on. If you've ever sat down in the middle of a TV show or in the middle of a movie, or worse yet, you've had a friend or a family member join you halfway through a movie or a television show, and they start asking you these questions that would be really obvious if they were there at the beginning. And you're like, can you just be quiet? I'm trying to, I'm trying to follow the story. I'm trying to see how, how it's going. And yet we're, we're often, we often do that as a church. There are ministers who spend their entire careers never wanting to touch the Old Testament in preaching and teaching. And they rob themselves of half or over half of what God has given us. And so in Scripture, it is good to start at the beginning because it is in these first chapters of Genesis we see how sin entered the world. And by seeing that, we know why Christ came. It is in these first chapters that we see the glory and the beauty of creation. And it's only then that you can start to understand how horrible it is to live in the fallen world and what we are missing. If you erode these chapters, you erode the entirety of the Christian faith, the foundation that it's built upon. And I I don't think it's too much to say that Satan expends a lot of his energy here and therefore the church should give equal energy to defending so I'll give you a few words here at the beginning I'm going to try to expose what the text has here exposit what the text has for us for foundations in these first three chapters of Genesis in the series and my belief stick with me here this is radical I believe the Bible means what it says and says what it means so that means I'm a six-day creationist I'm generally a young earth guy. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time giving you scientific reasoning for that. I believe the Bible speaks plainly and clearly here, so we should believe it. There are lots of really good ministries out there that can give you scientific reasoning and defenses of that. And if you want those resources, I can point you in those directions. But I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time making those arguments from the pulpit. There's a time and a place for that. But what I'm going to focus on is building the foundations. How does the Bible build our understanding of reality? And we start with these simple words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, he created everything that you see here. And I have three truths we're going to dive into this morning from those passages, or those few words. And the first is this. God existed before time Space in the universe did. God existed before time, space, and the universe existed. And you cannot glance over that reality. Time and space in the universe, you and me, we all have a definite starting point. We all have something. There was a time before which there wasn't Levi. There was a time before which there was not time or a universe or the planet Earth. But the same is not true about God. He was always there. And he always will be there. So before history began, and before time began, God was there. And that is the beginning of the Christian faith. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally existed for all, time's the wrong word, but I really can't speak outside of time, This is hard for us to grasp, because as creatures, we do not know how to think outside of time. What was uh, before time? Well, I don't really get it, but God was there. In order of events, before he spoke time into existence, he was there. So this means God is not limited by time. He He created it. And he is infinite in his power and in his control and in his presence throughout time. And this is, if you ever sat down and watched a movie or TV show, like all of them all the time now are trying to do these time travel things. Basically means they've run out of ideas uh, for stories to tell. But the problem with these time travel stories, and I've seen many of them, is if you stop to think about them for any amount of time, they just break down and they don't make any sense. Because thinking outside of time is an impossibility. No matter what a Hollywood writer wants to tell you, it never makes sense. They try to lay the ground rules in the movie for you, as this is how time travel works. And then you think about it and you're like, that really doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And thinking about God being outside of time is a little bit like that. I can can affirm it, I can think about it, but I don't really understand it. Because I am a time-bound creature. So try thinking about it this way. This helps me a little bit. The universe has a beginning and an end. God does not. You have a beginning and an end. But God is the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And this is an essential doctrine because there are only so many things, so many different theories man can come up with with where the universe came from. All right. I'm going to give us just three examples today. All right? So three examples. We could go through more. Most of the examples throughout human history of how the universe came about don't make a whole lot of sense. But here's three. Here's the first one. Everything that exists came from nothing at all. all right? This needs to be discussed very carefully so that everything that you see, including yourself, ultimately can be traced back to absolute nothingness. So what is nothing? Well, nothing is the absence of being. If I have zero dollars, if I have nothing in the monetary realm, that means I have no money, nothing at all. And so if we're talking about origins of the universe, then if the universe came from nothing, it has to be truly nothing. That means nothing, nothing, as Francis Schaeffer puts it. That is, there can't even be one pre-existing molecule. It's just utter nothingness. And then from that springs absolutely everything. And if you think about that for a few moments, you realize that that's insane. It's truly impossible. A professor I had once put it this way. He says, nothing doesn't exist. There's no such thing as nothing. Because the definition of nothing is something that doesn't exist. There's nothing existing there at all. So if the universe truly came from nothing, then we live in an impossibility, both logically and scientifically speaking. In other words, this is an absurd position. Nobody really holds it. It's impossible. So the second attempt at explaining why there is something instead of nothing is that everything we have in this universe came from a limited something, a purely physical, material, or impersonal beginning. And this is the dominant view we live in today. This is the one favored by many scientists and philosophers. And many of your neighbors unthinkingly embrace this idea. This is the Big Bang Theory. That at the beginning of everything, basically there's an eternal matter that existed in the singularity that eventually went boom. And from that came everything. And the problems with this view are plain and many For example, has anyone ever seen in this universe an explosion that brings order? That increases design. The laws of science themselves, the law of entropy, the second law of thermodynamics, say that everything in this universe goes from order to disorder. So you have this in the beginning of all of this scientific thinking. You have this special pleading. Well, that's true everywhere else except for right here. This breaks the rules. How do we know that? Because everything's here, so that's how we know that. The laws were broken. And there are really practical ramifications for this belief as well. If the universe has nothing behind it, except for a singularity, then there's no purpose to life. None really whatsoever. The universe had a lifeless beginning. Why is there life at all? How do you move from an inanimate rock to walking, talking, thinking, reasoning human beings? Others have noted that Christians are often mocked as being science deniers, especially today. They say things like, Jesus couldn't have rose from the dead. You can't have life come from unlife, from death. And I just want to politely point out to them that they think all life came from unlife. (laughs) So who's who's got the bigger problem? Not us, but them. If the origin of the universe is merely impersonal matter plus time and chance, then you and I are no greater than the parts that began the universe. There's no such thing in such a universe that's impersonal as human personality. There's no such thing as your consciousness. There's no such thing as any idea of free will. If this is our origin, impersonal matter compacted into one singularity, then humanity is really no different than a rock. It's really no different than a cat. And nobody likes cats. <laughs> and scientists know, somebody does. <laughs> it's OK, you'll learn better later. <laughs> they know that this, such thinking that man is impersonal, that he has no consciousness, no free will, is the necessary outcome of Darwinism and naturalism. They know this. I've read the scientists. They openly admit this. They say that evolution has tricked us into thinking that we have these things. It just appears that you have those things, but you don't really have those things. You're just a random collection of molecules and atoms that upon your death will reform into a different random collection of molecules and atoms. And man becomes nothing because man came from nothing. I'm not exaggerating. There are many people who live their life as such. I mean, I just heard a song on the radio the other day, this young, young lady's talking about how she's not a human being, she's just a machine. Where does that idea come from? It's a very popular song. It comes from this. We just, the universe is just a big machine, and so you are just a part of that machine. Or as Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, puts it, he says this about his view of the universe a purely Darwinistic, natural view of the universe. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. If the origin of the universe is a big bang, then this universe is nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Merry Christmas, put it on your holiday cards, send it to all your neighbors. This answer cannot account for anything that we observe in our lives. This grates against the universal human experience. If you have to say that you're all just tricked in the thinking that you're really thinking and not just a biochemical machine, then maybe your worldview is deficient. So third, the third option, where did this universe come from, is the option that Christianity puts forward. That the universe, before it began, there existed a personal and infinite source. That being God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That before the universe existed, there was a personal God. and by personal, I mean what Christianity is what, what is unique about Christianity and from all other world religions. that God is both one and He is both three. At the same time, one and three, one God and three persons. Father, Son and Holy Spirit existed from eternity past, relating personally to one another. Or as Jesus puts it in John 17, 24, where he speaks of the Father, he says, you loved me before the foundation of the world. And as before time and space existed, the Father loved the Son, the Son loved the Father, and the Holy Spirit, they all loved each other. That before this universe came into existence was not pitiless indifference, but the love of the triune God. That is the source of it all. This is not a dark and cold universe. And it also means that the God who created did not, as Christians we get this wrong sometimes, God did not create because he was lonely. He did not create because he needed something to love. The Father loved the Son, the Son loved the Father, the Spirit loved them both. God had everything he needed before he created. And yet he chose to create anyways. And so this God, the infinite one, the personal one, created the universe. And because he created the universe, there is a reason why you are a person. Why you can do things like think and have a will and love others. Why we have minds and souls and purpose is because before everything existed, the God who was infinite and personal was there and he spoke the universe into existence. It's not too much to say that it is only, it is only the Christian God, the triune God, the God who is there, who can account for the universe as we know it, as we see it, and as we experience it. And that's because he alone is God. I've said it before, I'll say it again. That if you trace the history of Western thought, if you trace to the, the insanity that we live in now, the meaninglessness of our society now, it's because we really are faced with this option. Either God, the God of Scripture is true, or none of this matters. None of this makes any sense. Those are the only two options. The other religions in this world, really when you dive into them, they're pretty absurd. They don't make sense at all. And then you have on the other side, naturalism and postmodernism. Everything is natural, so nothing is really true. We can't really know it. There's no right and wrong, but nobody lives that way. Because you can't. Because God made the universe, not the universe made itself. How did God make this universe? The answer is that he created ex nihilo, or that is, he created out of nothing. He didn't use anything besides his own natural power and ability to create. He spoke light into existence, and there was light. He separated the light from the darkness, and it was separated. He spoke, and it was so. God creates. And everything that exists came into existence through his will. And you and I, as image bearers, are sub-creators. Like God, we like to make stuff. I watch my sons assemble stuff and, and make things, and then they have all this pride over and they say, Daddy, look at how great this is. I made something. And in that way, they reflect the glory of God, but they can't just make something out of nothing. Only God can do that. Everything we do, we use pre-existing stuff. Whether it's the music we sing together, like you got... I'm not good at this, but you got the vocal cords and you got the sound vibrations and I don't know what's actually making the sound, but the vibrations in the air and you can hear things and they sound beautiful. Well, sometimes. Some of you aren't good at singing, like me. But you create something, but you're not creating it out of nothingness. There's this pre-existing stuff. We build houses and buildings out of material that God himself created out of nothing. He creates by his own power and he used nothing besides himself to make it and that's the same nothing nothing i was talking about earlier it was only him and then he made it and this shows us that god is distinct from his creation there are religions out there who believe that creation is an emanation or god is In all of creation, creation is God, God is creation. The universe and creation can't, or God and the universe can't really be distinct from one another. You see this in most of the old pagan religions from Native American thought that you can have. The spirit is in the rock, it's in the tree, it's in you, it's all everywhere. There's really no distinction between God and the universe. Christianity says no, there is an impassable wall of difference between the two. God alone is God, and he created something other than him. He transcends creation. He is greater than it. And so therefore, the universe and God are different. You may think that that's an insignificant point. But as other theologians make this point, uh, the reality of this difference trickles down throughout everything else. Why do Christians look at things and say that there are distinctions? Because at the beginning, there was a distinction between God and the universe. Naturalists say everything is matter. Everything is one. Everything can be broken down to one physical reality. It's just a gathering of of molecules or quarks or whatever the latest scientific term is. But Christians say there's a distinction, fundamental distinction at the beginning of the universe. So there can be distinctions within the universe. That there really is a distinction between men and women. There's a distinction between man and non-man, right? Humans and everything else. Why? Because there's a distinction between God and his creation. All of reality is not just a single oneness. And if you start with a single oneness, everything eventually moves towards that, as we see it happening today. And so we see that God is different and transcends his creation. But even as we say that, we also have to say that God is near to his creation. While he is distinct from it, he is not detached. He is not uninterested in creation. He loves creation. He upholds it. He designed it. He sustains it millisecond by millisecond, and he sent his son to redeem it. That is, he cares about what happens to it. And so God created everything out of nothing. And that leads us to that other point of his creation. That means he owns it all. And when you make something, again, I see this with my kids, one of them will make something beautiful and the other kid will come in and smash it. And oh boy, the tempers get going. If you've ever made something and invested all this time and somebody steals it or wrecks it, you know The pain and the anguish and the frustration. God made everything more fundamentally than you did. And this means all of it is his by divine right. And he does not like the fact that it has been wrecked and marred and is under a curse. So he sets out to redeem it. So our third third truth here from creation is that all things were created through Christ and for Christ. In John 1, 1 through 1-3, I know you know the passage. Right? The Apostle John draws us intentionally back to Genesis 1-1. He writes this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And as you trace this out throughout John 1, that Word is Jesus, the word becomes flesh and he dwells among us. And in doing this, in starting with in the beginning, John is pointing us not only back to Genesis 1.1 to tell us that the Son, God the Son, was involved in everything, that he made everything, that everything was made through him, but he's also doing something very, very important. By drawing us back to Genesis 1.1, he wants you to see that Jesus' incarnation is the start of the new creation. It's a new creative act. He wants you to interpret what is going to happen throughout the Gospel of John as God the Son, as he comes down to this world and he goes throughout his fallen creation, he is constantly turning the curse back. When Jesus walks up to a man possessed by demons and he casts out the demons, why is he doing that? Does he just want to show everybody how cool he is and how much power he has? When he walks up to somebody who has been lame their entire life and he tells them to stand up and walk, what is he doing? He's showing you that he is remaking the world. He's showing you that he's redeeming creation. He's showing you what his kingdom will be like. That God is doing a new creative act through the coming of the Son. Through his death, his resurrection, and his second coming. This is exactly what Paul gets at in Colossians 1. Verses 15 through 20. He writes of Christ. He says, Christ is the, invi- it is the visible image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he, that is Christ, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What he wants you to see here, what Paul wants you to see is, again, Jesus has all of this world because he created it all, And Jesus also has all of this world because he died for it all. By the blood of his cross. But I think perhaps the most shocking statement is actually at the end of verse 16. It's not just that he made it all. It's not just that he owns it all. But that everything exists for him. Everything that exists, exists and has its purpose in Christ. That means I exist For Jesus. You exist for Jesus. The chair you're sitting in exists for Christ. The socks you put on this morning exist for Christ. They're not insignificant. They do matter. And Revelation gives us this picture of that one day all creation will cry out. This wonderful picture in heaven. John's up there. And the angels are worshiping Jesus. But then it turns and it says, All of creation will cry out, Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. All of creation will look to Jesus and exalt His name. Because it all exists for Him. Every last molecule. And this means for you and me, that everything we do, every breath we have, Every corner of the universe is dripping with meaning and purpose. There's none of it that doesn't matter to him. All of it does. Because he made it all, and he's redeeming it all. What are some applications we can take from this? Well, the first thing I want you to take from this is you can be confident as a Christian in your faith. The Christian worldview, the Christian faith, is not afraid of questions. Now, I may not know the answer to the question you bring to me, but you can bring me any question. I'll look into it. But our faith is not afraid of questions. And the more you dive into comparative analysis of what Christians believe and what the other options are, and I can tell you, the Christian faith is objectively more beautiful than any other option. Not only does it give you the foundation for your experience in life, but it means that your life has meaning and purpose. Nobody else can really provide that today. You could be like Sartre and say, well, you just exist, so go make your own meaning. But you know what? That meaning dies with you. If Christianity is true, though, then everything matters because Christ made it all, Christ owns it all, and Christ is redeeming it all. Second application. Go into your life this week with confidence knowing that Christ is redeeming whatever area of life you are expending your energy in. Whether that's work, family life, politics, public policy, I don't know where you spend most of your time. But God cares. And his gospel impacts that area of life. So live in that confidence that the new creation is breaking into this world through the life, death, in resurrection of Jesus Christ. And third, consider for a moment what the psalmist writes in Psalm 100. I was just, by God's providence, had this passage in my devotional time this week. And I said, well, I I should use this. So here you are, you're stuck with me. He writes this, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness, come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Why do Christians praise God? Well, we get two, two reasons here. What? He made us in Psalm 100? Why do we praise the Lord? He made you, and second, He owns you. We are His. As Christians, God made us twice over, both through creation and His remaking us through redemption. And so we look at creation in general, we look at what Jesus has done for us, and the proper response is to praise and thank Him for His steadfast love and His great faithfulness. You live in the theater of God's glory as John Calvin put it. And so you are beset with reasons to praise God for he has made you and you are his. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have existed for all eternity. And that in you there is nothing lacking. But out of your goodness and the overflow of your love, you created us. You created everything we see And experience. And Lord, we are quick to take advantage of that. We are quick to pervert it. We are quick to forget you. So, Lord, I ask that you would turn our hearts and our minds to you constantly to look at creation, to look at ourselves, to look at the cross, and to praise you for your faithfulness and your steadfast love. Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes of faith to see our lives in light of what you have done and are doing. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's respond with a song that I think we all know, number 60. Stand together.